Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, a podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm Fred Dews. My guest in the studio today is John Villasenor. He is a non-resident senior fellow in the Center for Technology Innovation at Brookings and a professor of electrical engineering, public policy, and management at UCLA, where he is also a visiting professor of law. He is the co-author with Dara West and Robin Lewis of a new report on financial and digital inclusion, and he is here to talk about that research. Also stay tuned to hear from John Hudak on what's happening in the presidential campaign. John, welcome to the show. Thanks very much for having me. So financial and digital inclusion, it's part of a, of a multi-year project that you and Daryl and Robin are involved in. This is the second report that y'all have put out. What is the sort of um, summary, the elevator pitch of financial and digital inclusion? Well, there's about 2 billion people uh, around the world who are outside the formal financial system. Uh, and financial inclusion is the term uh, that is used for the efforts to increase the reach of the formal financial system, whether that be through traditional uh, banking, the traditional banking systems, or through technologies uh, such as mobile money, to have uh, more and more of these people, uh, formerly excluded or who were marginally participating before, increase their participation and access to financial services. And that's good for a long list of reasons. So the opposite then is financial exclusion. What does that kind of look like on the ground? What does that feel like for somebody who is excluded from that? Financial ex, a, a person who is financial ex, financially excluded uh, will not have an account with any sort of formal financial institution. This means that the, they are in general engaging in transactions uh, on a purely cash basis with all of the security concerns that that, that can sometimes raise. Uh, that means it can be difficult to, to save money. Uh, it also means that they are more exposed to the potential for, for example, exploitative uh, uh, lending schemes and, and the like. And so uh, a financially excluded person is then not able to avail themselves of, of the many benefits and protections uh, that are possible to get under the more formal financial system. Now, the report has a, uh, a country scorecard of the uh, 26 countries that are included uh, but how do you measure the phenomenon financial and digital inclusion? That's a great question. And and the short answer is is that there is no perfect way to measure it. Um, but at the same time, it, it's, of course, uh, important to, to try to do your best. So what we've done is we've created a system that involves four what we call dimensions. And those dimensions are country commitment, mobile capacity, regulatory environment, and then adoption. And for each of these four dimensions, we have a set of indicators uh, that we look at to assess to what extent a particular country uh, is doing things uh, on that dimension. And then we aggregate all of these scores together uh, and then come up with uh, with an overall score. And in and, and measuring this, we draw from a really an enormous set of, of data uh, from many different sources. And I mentioned that there are uh, 26 countries in the study. I think that's five more than you had a year ago. What is the sort of geographic, the global scope of these countries? So we've intentionally tried to pick a list of countries that is very diverse uh, economically, geographically, politically. Uh, so we have countries really all over the world. We've got them in Africa and Asia and Latin America. Uh, and the, the, so there's a lot of many different countries represented. We have some uh, fairly uh, kind of higher income in a relative sense countries. Uh, as well as some uh, very low-income countries. And, of course, they span a, a very wide range of, of economic circumstances. And we've tried to do this because 
we recognize that you know, in a world that has nearly 200 countries, uh, 26 countries in, is in some sense a, a very small fraction, yet there are analogs. Many of the countries in the world, even those not included in, this, in our study, will have analogs w- with some of the countries that we do include in the study. So it's, it's not exhaustive, but we hope, we hope that it is in, in many ways representative of the types of, of challenges, opportunities, and progress that we're seeing globally in financial inclusion. And, and it doesn't include uh, the United States or Canada or the European countries or Japan or Korea. Yeah, that is correct, although it's important to recognize that, that the United States, for example, also has uh, financial inclusion challenges in the sense that we have uh, populations here in the United States who are outside the formal financial system. So um, that we, we would in no way uh, suggest or I would in no way suggest that, that this particular list of countries is the only place where we have challenges. Really, in, in pretty much every country in the world, there is some set of the population uh, that's excluded. And uh, in fact, one of the things we'd, we'd like to be able to look at in the future is uh, the United States because there's a, there's a significant challenge with some populations here as well. I know one example that you, you talk about, uh, it's an example of a kind of um, financial uh, service that people access over mobile is mobile money, which is a really big deal in some African countries. I think M-Pesa is one of the is one of the financial services that people take advantage of. Right. So mobile money has, uh, in certain, certain countries, uh, and, and Kenya is often held out as, as the example, uh, has been uh, extremely impactful. Uh, in Kenya, as you mentioned, there's a, a service called M-Pesa, uh, which uh, has been adopted by just a, a stunning percentage of the adult population of, of Kenya. Um, and mobile money is, is being used in, in other countries as well, uh, Tanzania and Uganda, uh, to, to give some examples. But that said, there's also some jurisdictions where, for a variety of reasons, mobile money has not experienced a lot of adoption. Yet, in those jurisdictions, you still see very significant improvements in financial inclusion. So uh, I think mobile money is an important element of financial inclusion as an option, but and it, and it works terrifically in some jurisdictions, but in other jurisdictions, it's possible to make great progress in financial inclusion through other mechanisms, for example, through extending the traditional banking system through something called agent banking. Since you brought up uh, Kenya, let's let's stay on that for a minute. Kenya ranked the highest in, in your countries. I think it had eighty-four percent score. I believe it was the highest last year as well. Can you can you walk us through why Kenya uh, scores the best in uh, in your in your rating? So Kenya is. Um Kenya is notable, uh, and, and it's it's often held out as sort of the poster child for success for uh, for financial inclusion, uh, just because of the incredibly high uh, rate of adoption of mobile money services. And in our in our report, uh, we found uh, they had very strong scores across uh, the country commitment. Um, they've had the the third highest score among the twenty six countries in terms of a com- country commitment. Uh, one of the highest scores also in terms of, of uh, mobile capacity, also one of the highest scores uh, in regulatory environment, and then the highest score uh, in terms of, of ad- adoption. Kenya, among our countries, had the highest percentage of mobile money account ownership among any of these countries, uh, which, which was uh, 58% of adults age 15 and older, or persons age 15 and older, uh, as of 2014, which is the, the latest data we had. So, so across all four of the dimensions, Kenya has uh, done just uh, some amazing things with providing uh, mechanisms for financial inclusion for, for the population there. 
Let's take a quick break here to get caught up on the campaign trail with senior fellow John Hudak. The presidential race right now is all about conflicting stories and narratives, and the resolution of these conflicts over the coming days and weeks will tell us much about what the last 75 days of campaign 2016 will look like. After further tumultuous times in the leadership of the Trump campaign, Trump once again replaced his campaign chief, bringing in Kellyanne Conway, an experienced GOP pollster, and Steve Bannon, the head of Breitbart Media, in an effort to right the ship. Trump has been plummeting in the polls and failing to stay on message since the Republican National Convention, and these moves are an effort to try to make things better. While the new leadership has promised to instill more discipline to the campaign and the candidate himself, the results so far have been mixed. On the one hand, Trump is finally buying TV advertising, the first time in the general election, is devoting more time to fundraising, and is using a teleprompter in an effort to stay on message. On the other hand, Trump continues to campaign in states like Connecticut and Texas instead of swing states, launch personal attacks at the media, and has faced questions about the legitimacy of a doctor's note about the quality of his health. In addition, Trump has been vacillating on his hardline stance on immigration, mass deportations, building a wall on the U.S.-Mexico border, extreme vetting, as he calls it, of entrance into the U.S., and a ban on Muslims entering the country, all amid reports that he's also willing to be more moderate on the issue. Clinton has faced additional questions over emails being released and the relationship between the Clinton Foundation donors and the State Department during her time as Secretary of State. Media organizations in the Trump campaign have made accusations that a pay-for-play scheme took place, swapping donations for access. The Clinton camp has pushed back hard, arguing that media organizations are mischaracterizing the situation and cherry-picking Secretary Clinton's meetings in order to fit a narrative. After weeks of taking hits, the Trump campaign hopes to use the Clinton Foundation story as a springboard to a better effort this fall. Conflicting stories are not just reserved for scandals. The Trump campaign and the Republican Party have been bullish about their fundraising in recent weeks, that it's being among the strongest in the election cycle thus far. Trump's campaign and related efforts raised about $80 million in July, but that was dwarfed by Clinton raising $90 million. In fact, every major Democratic election organization, the DNC, the DCCC, and the DSCC, outraced their Republican counterparts in July and ended the month with more cash on hand. Finally, polling on the presidential race has offered a conflicting storyline as well. Clinton received a significant bounce after the DNC and held on to that lead nationwide for weeks. In late August, though, that lead narrowed slightly, suggesting Trump was gaining some ground nationally. A relief for the Trump campaign? Not so fast. A look at swing state polls shows Clinton continuing to increase her lead in effectively every swing state, including Colorado, Iowa, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Virginia, New Hampshire, Wisconsin, Nevada, and North Carolina. Recent polling has also suggested a tight race in states Mitt Romney won in 2012, like Missouri, Arizona, and Georgia. While national polls have narrowed, the Electoral College count shows Trump is struggling to carve out a credible path to the White House. I'm John Hudak, and that's what's happening on the campaign trail. You can get more analysis and commentary at our FixGov blog at brookings.edu slash FixGov. And now back to the interview with John Villasenor. Uh, as you think about expanding inclusion, is it, um, is, it, is it a technological challenge like mobile banking or is it a governance challenge like regulation? Is it some combination of both? Yeah, I, and I would say that it, the answer is all of the above. Um, I think um, 
mobile banking is is in part a technology challenge, but it's also a regulatory challenge, a, a government challenge. So, um, yeah, the, the the and this is why we chose the dimensions that we did to advance financial inclusion. You need a committed government. Uh, you need the engagement of and participation of the private sector, and and that will only happen if there's a regulatory environment uh, which which promotes uh, and enables uh, the private sector to to engage and to do so in a way that that they'll want to engage. In other words, that they find these to be uh, good business op- good business opportunities, uh, and of course, it's a technology challenge to the extent that uh, many of the solutions uh, involve, for example, uh, wireless access uh, to the internet through mobile phones, and so that. For that to happen, you have to have the infrastructure, uh, the network coverage to enable that, and also people have to have the phones uh, in hand to be able to do that. And, and the good news is on, on all of those axes and all of those fronts, uh, the trends are, in general, all going in the right direction. Talk about uh, financial inclusion for women in particular. That's a, that's a big piece of this report. Why is that so important? Well, it's really important. Uh, gender equity, gender parity is is obviously a, an issue of, of profound importance uh, all over the world. And the data show that unsurprisingly and unfortunately, women tend to be disproportionately excluded uh, from the formal financial system uh, by, by a number of percentage points. And of course, it, uh, it's particularly acute, more acute in some countries than in others. But in all countries, uh, there is the 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 it, it should be a, a priority to uh, obtain gender parity with respect to access to the financial system, uh, and it is um, it is very important. And so, uh, you know, measures and mechanisms uh, that can promote access by women uh, to formal financial services uh, are uh, are a very positive thing and something that that I personally think is is very important for advancing financial inclusion as a whole. Now, um, looking ahead, what are some of the the next steps that countries um, who didn't rank as high in your report uh, could take to increase financial and digital inclusion for their for their citizens? Well, I think um, when when a country is, is has more room to improve in financial inclusion. Very often, uh, there are uh, regulatory frameworks where there's an opportunity to improve regulatory frameworks. Uh, it's also, um, I think almost all countries these days, or most countries, um, uh, believe in the value of financial inclusion, but but to go beyond the sort of high-level statement that financial inclusion is is a goal to the the more nuts and bolts work of actually implementing the the policies and the creating the regulatory environment to actually promote it, uh, is it, it takes it takes time and it and it takes commitment and uh, those are the kinds of things that uh, to actually advance financial inclusion uh, need to happen. But but I'll step back and say you know we're seeing we're seeing really good progress across just an enormous range of countries, uh, and that's all very encouraging. I want our listeners to know that you've just come from an event. Uh, here at Brookings, a public event that featured um, Daryl West, one of the co-authors, and the ambassadors to the United States from Uganda and Rwanda, in which you all talked about um, this report. So people can find that audio video on our on our website. Yeah, and that was it was great to hear um, their perspectives and you know them talking about some of the specific things that their governments have been doing, and also they gave. Um, if your listeners want to go and, and look at the the webcast there they'll see the ambassadors gave some really interesting, very country-specific perspectives on 
on how uh, they are addressing financial inclusion and some of the p- particular solutions that they have implemented uh, in their in their countries in a, in a very context specific way. So it was it was a fascinating discussion, and we were we were very fortunate to have them uh, come over and uh, speak to us. And uh, also, this the financial and digital inclusion project that has produced this report. Um, It's a multi-year project, and you've received inputs on last year's report that I fed into this report. I know you asked at the event for additional inputs to inform um, the report going forward. Yeah, that's right. So just for context, uh, as you mentioned in your, in your introduction, this is a, a an effort we started two years ago. And so basically the, the way we've done this is we work for a year to gather all the data and do the analysis. And when I say gather the data, we're not actually personally going out and doing surveys, uh, but we're aggregating data uh, that we that we can get from other sources. So we, we, we aggregate all that, we analyze it. We come up with the country descriptions, and then at the end of each year, we publish the report. So the first report was uh, published one year ago uh, in August of 2015. The second report uh, has has just come out this month, and and right now we are uh, we're working to put together. We're st- we've already started the process of gathering information that will eventually be reflected uh, in the report. Uh, that report that's going to come out uh, a, a year from now. Well, it's a substantial piece of research on a very important topic, um, John. I want to thank you for your time today. Well, thank you very much for having me, and I really appreciate it. You can find this report on our website at brookings.edu slash FDIP. Another aspect of the question uh, that you just asked, you you mentioned uh, seeking feedback, and, and that's right. One, one of the challenges uh, that you have, anyone has, when they're trying to come up with a, uh, a quantitative way to evaluate something like this is, is that uh, there's really no perfect way to do it. In other words, any particular set of metrics that you come up with are going to be uh, subject potentially to, to reasonable criticism that it that it may over or underemphasize something, uh, and that it therefore is is not the perfect way to do it. So one of the things we did after we published our first report last year was we specifically went out to the uh, to the community and we said, uh, what can we do better? You know, what 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 about our our metrics and our and our system for evaluating these things? Uh, do you think could be improved? And um, one of the things that we, the, one of the pieces of feedback we specifically or consistently got was that we weren't sufficiently attentive to consumer protection, uh, and which indeed is really important. And, and I think the, the people who gave us that feedback were, were right. We, we hadn't been as attentive as we could be. And so this year, in this, in this year's report, uh, we did add consideration of consumer protection. Uh, and we intend, again, with this year's report to again go out to the community and and, and seek uh, and uh, hopefully respond uh, to uh, feedback and suggestions that we can get to to you know improve things uh, even more. And that's all for this edition of the Brookings Cafeteria. My thanks to audio engineer and producer Mark Holscher and to producer Vanessa Sauter. Bill Finan does the book interviews and design and web support comes from Jessica Pavone, Eric Abalahan, and Rebecca Weiser. And a special thanks to Richard Fawal for podcast guidance and support. You can subscribe to the Brookings Cafeteria on iTunes and listen to it in all the usual places. Want to ask a scholar a question? Send an email to bcp at brookings.edu and I'll get an answer for you. Until next time, I'm Fred Dews.